When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. You join me today while I am in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, we're going to, if we have time, talk tackle three topics of all those things afflicting the world at the moment. What are we going to begin with? We're going to start with um, uh, an article that appeared. It was actually part of the Guardian newspaper's long read, and it was written by the former Australian Prime Minister and leader of their Labour Party, Kevin Rudd. I didn't know that Kevin, in his youth, um, studied Mandarin and is especially a specialist in Chinese history and Chinese thinking, which I would imagine if you were a, a former leader of Australia, would be an incredibly um, useful background mm. to have given the regional politics. But he wrote um, an article uh, which is based on a, a on a book he's done, and and the article was it was rather it was a rather stark heading. It was how to stop Russia, the United States going to war, and it was a fascinating read given his experience and and his his scholarship, and. Basically, he says that um, when you have uh, new rising powers in the world um, and you have a shift, therefore, in who the dominant forces mm. are, then you reach a period of, of maximum tension and risk. And he, he pointed out that really one of the things this decade, the 2020s, is going to see is China for the first time likely becoming a larger economy than the United States. Just like 100 years ago, the United States overtook Britain as the world's largest economy. Mm. And what he tries to map out um, is the ways in which these countries can coexist uh, peacefully in the future. And he reminds us that China um, is a very old civilization. It has a lot of ancient uh, and philosophical thought that it's a ultimately it's a dynastic uh, country um, that we have to really understand the modern Chinese Communist Party I guess as its most recent dynastic iteration but he points out that Xi Jinping is a particularly charismatic and particularly forceful and visionary leader um, and probably the most visionary since Mao Zedong um, of course modern Chinese history is riven not only with the successes we see today, but also quite a lot of failure. So he reminds us of the 30 million dead that they suffered um, uh, with the Great Leap Forward, so-called in 1958. And in the early 60s, of course, they had the Cultural Revolution where anywhere you know, around 50 million people died. But he, he says that, that China has a different economic model. It has combined its traditional authoritarianism with that of a free market. They've developed uh, their own authoritarian capitalism. This does not mean that they're going to liberalize. 
uh, as some people I think in the West had hoped 20 years ago, um, that they were going to embrace diversity and liberalism or democracy. Um, um, and he says, basically, we have to deal with the reality of this and we have to find a way of getting on. And what he really argues, this is the nub of it, that first of all, we mustn't have a dialogue of the deaf, that there's a natural incentive within the US elites and in the Chinese elites uh, to misread each other. That can be because of uh, poor translation, uh, an inability to hear the other side and understand them in the terms that they wish to be uh, to be heard. Or it can be down to simple things. You know, maybe Xi Jinping's intelligence community uh, want to ham up an agenda that they think the West has because they think that that briefing will please him. So there are all kinds of risks here. Well, ultimately, what he argues is that there should be uh, what he calls a joint strategic framework negotiated uh, between the United States and China, and that this should really um, update the sort of institutional architecture that the United States and the victorious powers put in in terms of the international order at the end of World War II. And, and this strategic framework um, has three elements. One, read each other more accurately and have a commitment to listen to one another. Agree where there will be outright competition um, and accept that they, that will be the new norm, um, but also define those areas where uh, there can be cooperation. So for example, in terms of the environment um, or, 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 or maintaining some form of international legal order, you know, there are all kinds of areas where there can be room for cooperation. But that, you know, where there is where there is um, going to be competition, okay, but it shouldn't become unruly and it shouldn't stray into war. Both sides, I think, ultimately should know each other's red lines mm. and then act accordingly. And he he does, I, I think, have a degree of optimism. He says that there is no indication that China has an appetite or a desire, or even a history of where it wants to. Um, force people to act in other parts of the world. You know, China says it does not want to force anyone. If people want to have in, uh, relations with them, if they want to trade with them, that's up for other people. Um, it is, of course, expanding its military. It is, as any rising power does, it's flexing its muscles and it's testing boundaries. It's doing that in the Philippines. It's doing it in the South China Sea, the East China Sea. Um, it's doing it in parts of the Indian Ocean, but most rising powers do that kind of thing. Um, but China does not have, you know, a great tradition of coercion. So, you know, this idea of there being a, a, a joint strategic framework, I think, is interesting um, in the hope of having a smooth transition to a risen China, no longer rising, but basically is by the end of this decade, will have arrived. Mm. But to some extent, has the West not been asleep at the wheel? Now, you can understand why we felt that a, you know, a market-driven economy might actually turn China into some wonderful liberal democracy. We were completely wrong. But you can not understand why people hoped that might be the case. But 
over the last few years, as, as you have discussed on more than one occasion on this program, I mean, China, through things like the Belt and Road Initiative and through uh, developments in, in particularly in Africa, but also in Central and South America, I mean, they've just stolen a march on the rest of the world. I mean, Sri Lanka is now on the verge of default, um, requiring help from the IMF because it's got so heavily indebted to China. But, you know, the world is trying to move to using you know, electric power vehicles and which country has virtually all the um, ingredients that are needed to make these batches, it's China. China has been planning for many years to, to get control of that market. And so we're, we're going to be incredibly beholden to China, which makes talk about, you know, ordinary um, military power or diplomatic power. I mean, it, it, it's, it's rather different, isn't it, when, when we're actually so beholden to China because of uh, materials that we need in order to pursue our everyday lives. I think I think I think that, that you know, that's true, but um, the, the first thing is that, that countries and empires come and go. Um, Britain had its day. Um, I mean, you could argue that with the loss of the United States, you know, the British Empire peaked, mm. and and it was sort of around for one or two hundred years. Uh, America has clearly. Uh, had its century and remains a very formidable power. Um, China um, has changed uh, immeasurably and in all kinds of directions. I mean, it's moved from communism to embrace the market. Um, it's had periods of, of extreme, well, not just authoritarianism, but totalitarianism. Mm. It then had a tremendous period of liberalization. It's now veering back in a more authoritarian direction. The first thing I'd say is that she, there is no guarantee beyond the next five or 10 years that, that Xi Jinping's model of authoritarian capitalism mm. will necessarily last. It might be um, that as China grows and develops in the sort of ways you're describing, that the model again has to adapt and change. Mm -hmm. There will be, will there not, a post-Xi Jinping world. Um, the next thing is, well, you've already pointed to it. When, when China um, has signed up partners and done uh, deals that, that, that cause huge economic problems, for example, in mm -hmm. Sri Lanka, that I would suggest um, is not a sign of wise statecraft. In fact, I can think of many ancient Chinese who would be appalled at the lack of sustainability of mm. that approach. You know, it's a, it's a hapless approach. It's counterproductive. Far better to do deals uh, with people um, where they don't get into such hot water, they have to go to places like the IMF. So I think this is fast moving terrain. I don't think anything is set in stone. And I think that a joint framework is part of a much broader jigsaw it's mm. one piece of a much broader jigsaw about how to deal with a China that is absolutely on the rise, has already made some mistakes. And whilst Xi Jinping is the current leader and, and is, is fighting corruption and using a pretty powerful top-down state and at times clearly um, abusing all manner of human rights, what will become of China in the 2030s or 40s and how it may stray towards liberalism again? These are all unpredictable. What does appear to be the case is that the Chinese state seems to have um, the ambition and it seems to be on a trajectory whereby most Chinese people will be earning um, the sort of modest salaries that are currently available 
in uh, the developed countries. They, they seem to be on target to be delivering, you know, a basic salary to most people of around that 20 to 35,000 US dollar mark. And one of the interesting things about that level of wealth is that, that, that people normally can enjoy a quality of life. Crucially, uh, they can indulge in hobbies and they can indulge in uh, a reasonable amount of a disposable income. Uh, they can satisfy all their basic needs and they can uh, follow, le uh, they can pursue leisure. Um, mm. And and usually um, with that kind of framework comes uh, a more peaceful, a peaceable and satisfied society. So there are, I think, some reasons to be cheerful. Um, um, I think one step to help us navigate through this period, this coming decade and beyond, is to create a framework. It is to accept the competition mm. that's on the table, to understand each other's red lines and to cooperate where we can. And then to keep an eye and to find out if this model of authoritarian capitalism, which involves an awful lot of nationalization, Simon, an awful mm. lot of state planning, whether that really is sustainable in the medium and long term. I'm not so sure. For me, the jury is out. Okay, fascinating. Uh, it's time for us then to switch topics. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans of Middlesex University. Tim, where are we going now? Um, we're going to go to an article which, when I first read it, I, I almost couldn't believe that I was reading it. Um, it was written in, in, or published in the last um, day or so by Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who's an extraordinary sort of agent provocateur at the best of times. Um, and it's a comment piece he wrote in The Telegraph called Sahara Solar Could Soon Rescue Britain's Broken Energy System. And you'll see um, why... Um, I almost couldn't believe it when 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 it starts with the paragraph within five years, the world's longest undersea cable will link Devon to a vast turret territory of solar panels in the Sahara Desert. And it was an article in April, but not on the first. It was, indeed, exactly. So, I mean, the long and the short of it is that um, there are a group of business people uh, very serious players, chaired um, by the former chief executive of Tesco, no less, uh, Sir Dave Lewis, um, uh, for that it's a £16 billion uh, pound project called Exlink, Morocco-UK Power Project. And basically, plans are advanced whereby um, there could be, uh, in the middle of this decade, and then, and, and, and then another project by the end of the decade, there could be basically a cable that can link um, 
uh, uh, the United Kingdom in the Southwest to, um, to what can only be described as an energy farm in parts of North Africa that will harness uh, the bright sunlight and indeed um, the, the, the trade winds on, on the coast of North Africa to deliver um, a vast amount of energy. Um, the plans for this project are real. Uh, um, there is already money behind it. The players are serious and, um, and the numbers around it look very, very impressive. What, what, what's important is that given that part of the planet, having a lot of sunshine and a lot of wind, to combine those two elements could provide almost sort of near constant power to the United Kingdom uh, for something in excess of 20 hours a day and do it on a fairly continual basis um, all around the year. Um, the economics of this are fascinating because in fact, although this is a, you know, would demand a large amount of investment, as I've said, 16 billion pounds, um, it's an awful lot of cheaper than, than alternatives such as nuclear energy, which don't just carry a lot of upfront costs, but it would entail all manner of externalities and long-term yes. costs. Um, and, uh, uh, and for me, what's so impressive about this is it is one of those completely um, uh, you know, thinking out of the box projects uh, where the technology and the economics around the technology have just conspired to make it a possibility. And I wonder if it, if, if it won't happen. Um, rather like at the end of the 19th century, suddenly with the carburetor and, and the rubber tire, suddenly some planets came into alignment and very quickly we had the motor vehicle or yeah. with the, with the, um, with, uh, um, uh, the short brothers, you know, suddenly we had aviation taking off within the first decade of, of, of the last century. Seems to me this could be one of those sorts of projects. Um, so I find it fascinating. No, I, I agree. I think I'd vaguely heard of it before, but yes, this was a very interesting written piece. My, I suppose my main concern is one that, I mean, they must have considered, but given what's happened this year alone, energy security is obviously something incredibly important. Um, if you're actually stringing cables you know, all the way back, we already know from other articles that you and I have seen um, uh, that submarines are capable of cutting um, undersea cables it's believed to be something that both sides are quite keen to do you know in the event of a a, a bigger conflict between um uh major nations um but also there's the worry about uh, you know security actually in morocco where they're building this it's a reasonably stable country but that doesn't mean that you know the farm couldn't be sabotaged i mean if we in britain are heavily dependent upon this massively long cable and something goes wrong at the other end well we're stuffed Indeed. Well, that's a good point. I mean, the first thing is uh, we have been reliant um, on all kinds of energy supplies from some of the world's most um, unstable uh, places for a very long time. Uh, I mean, for example, one of the most heavily fortified and defended places on Earth is the um, is Aramco in in um, in the Middle East. Um, and and there are many other examples where where, you know, where the governments come and go or there are forces fighting um uh, private sector enterprises that have vast amounts of sunk sunk sort of capital costs find a way to hire whoever it, it takes to defend their assets um so so is that of course secondly it, 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 it's why you insure um 
projects and 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 then those insurers invariably reinsure risks on the market to to defray any of the problems third thing i would say is there's actually nothing new um in a sense in the sort of warfare you describe um during the first world war um uh the british and the germans uh were you know wanted very much to control the cables um that linked um wireless services and, and therefore propaganda mm. uh to uh places like the united states of america and no doubt there are all kinds of expeditions to try and undermine and, and cut cables and i'm sure that's the case in the second world war so there's nothing fundamentally new in this per se um um you would not if you were britain or any other country put all your eggs in one basket i think the key is to diversify and you know if i look at um the sort of power that we have in the united kingdom uh, pretty much in any day of the week we tend to have a small percentage of our power coming from the netherlands or from belgium or from france we then have wind we have solar we have nuclear we have a small amount of coal um and we use gas so we really have diversity i don't think that this project would ever be pretend to be or the british government of any political persuasion would ever see it as a monopoly provider mm. what they would see it as as part of that diverse mix it might be that in time a pipeline like this um is well able to provide us with 10 20 or 30 percent of our energy or but yes because of the risks you describe you could also have backup plans and you can mm -hmm. have other alternative arrangements um that to me is business as usual that's part and parcel of what i would call um statecraft uh, tim thank you uh time now to move to our third sharing ideas about money this is share radio this is simon rose uh we are talking about the bigger picture with Tim Evans, a professor of business and political economy at Middlesex University. And what is our third topic, Tim? Um, so the third uh, topic um, uh, is Boris Johnson um, and uh, this party gate issue. And I confess that uh, for me, um, um, I understand uh, that there were these parties at number 10 Downing Street i understand that they went against the spirit of what most people uh thought were the lockdown rules at the time i, I can imagine that boris um uh, uh maybe thought he was in a bubble uh he might have um uh, he might have consciously flouted the law um i have no idea um but I'm pretty sure he wasn't the only person uh, to have made an error. Um, there are lots of reports recently, you know, about Keir Starmer having enjoyed a beer and a pizza, mm. or a moment when Nicola Sturgeon, um, um, uh, you know, didn't wear a mask. You know, I think most of us probably had a moment. I, I certainly remember a couple of times where I went in the supermarket and I think I forgot to wear my mask I was a minute or two late so so that's that what I would say um is that uh for me the one person I've said it before the one in person um 
who impressed me the most during um, uh, the height of the COVID crisis, if we can call it that, or the pandemic, was actually the Labour leader in Wales, um, Mark Drakeford. I thought he was, in many ways, the most effective communicator. And my impression, I might be wrong, but my impression is that at no stage uh, did he fail to wear his mask or have a pizza or or was seen going into a party. And so when it comes to um, uh, all this party gate um, shenanigans in Parliament in Westminster, for me, the one person who seems actually to, um, to, have, to have done quite well um, was the Labour leader in Scotland. But he, he, he seems to be forgotten uh, down here. And, um, and I think that's a bit of a shame. But yes, it, it, for me, you know, the, the Prime Minister has apologised, I think. Uh, Keir Starmer apologised. I think Nicola Sturgeon apologised. My major concern now with Johnson is he, he might be uh, wounded. He might stay as prime minister. He might not. There is a war on, in effect, uh, between Ukraine and Russia. That is a really, really important issue. I'm not convinced it's always wise to change prime minister or leader in, in a time when you're dealing with something so big as that. But ultimately, my beef with all this is, quite frankly, the lack of talent that I see yes. right yeah. across Parliament and putting all the political parties to the side um, uh, and, 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 and putting, you know, whether it's the Scottish Nationalists or Labour or the Tories to the side. I don't see any great talent or charismatic or visionary leader in any of those tribes and parties standing mm. out and someone who could be an obvious candidate to be prime minister. Boris, you know, maybe an election winner. I don't know. Um, but he certainly doesn't seem to have a clear vision or plan for where this country is going. Keir Starmer strikes me as a very nice man, but similarly, I, I, I don't think he would necessarily make a great prime minister. So Partygate might provide an awful lot of column inches in our national press, and it might excite people of different tribes. But over and above it, um, I have to confess, I find it tedious, and ultimately I find it depressing, um, because uh, for me, it's about a lack of vision, and it's about a lack of talent um, in our, at the heart of our body politic. The lack of vision and the lack of competence becoming increasingly obvious by by yeah. the day but surely from an electoral point of view the real problem is not that they might have done the same sort of thing as almost everybody else might have done sometime but the fact that the people who set the rules either willingly or knowingly disobeyed them or didn't understand them because they were so blasted complicated in the first place that they didn't even know that they were breaking the rules that they had actually inflicted on the rest of us, and that surely is the kiss of death. It's that one rule is one rule for us and one rule for them. Is surely the sort of thing that the electorate finds very difficult to forgive. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. But if that comes to pass, um, then the question is, well, what next and who next? And that isn't clear to me. Mm. Um, um, I mean, what I do remember. Um, very early on in the lockdown phase was that you might remember the initial rules absolutely allowed outside workers, for example, builders on building sites mm. um, to work. Um, 
I don't think initially the government wanted the full and sort of total lockdown that they ended up getting. But boy, with the national press, particularly the Daily Mail and the Express, mm. clamouring uh, for, 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 yes. for a full lockdown. Yes. Then, of course, within a couple of months, um, a lot of that national press had turned tail again and was saying that it was all yes. totalitarian and draconian. I'm sure this is true the world over. Um, Tim, a very brief question, because we're nearly out of yeah. time. But before he became Prime Minister, Boris Johnson was considered to be a, a, a libertarian, a small state, low tax sort of politician. He wrote about that sort of thing time and time again. I mean, the reason, I guess, one of the reasons he was put in, in charge of, of Brexit, um, of which we seem to have taken very little advantage. What has changed in Boris Johnson? Because we're getting a, you know, a high tax uh, almost, I mean, there was an article today in the Telegraph from uh, Alistair Heath saying, you know, Britain is gradually being turned into France and not not in a good way either. State intervention, left, right and centre, higher taxes. Um, you know, Boris has been heard actually, you know, insulting the business community. What's changed? So what happens is um, politicians uh, away from producing um, spin in newspaper columns when they're actually mm. doing the job description, when they're actually at the helm of the ship of state, they're often overwhelmed by events. And there's no way, you know, that, that, that Boris Johnson and anyone else who became prime minister at the last election um, could have foreseen COVID mm. or, or indeed the sort of conflict that, that, that you're seeing between Russia and Ukraine today. So I think he's been blindsided by events. Um, and those events have led to unintended consequences. We're seeing now inflation, and we're seeing an economic downturn or a possible recession looming. We, we hear every day about um, the rising cost of energy, and we hear about the sort of impact that the war in Ukraine is going to have on food prices over the months ahead. Before that, look at the impact of COVID on the National Health Service. Now, when you are a Conservative Prime Minister, and however much money, quite frankly, you put into the NHS, you're not trusted with it. And because of COVID, um, suddenly the waiting list goes up in excess of 6 million, and a huge proportion of people are turning to the private medical sector. These spell you know, serious problems for um, for, yes. Even for chemotherapy, I was reading today. Exactly. I mean, yeah. and, they, and, and let's be honest, even if the Labour Party had won the last election with a, with a majority, mm. the, the, you know, the same problems would have stood. You, you, you could have imagined having, you know, a Labour government uh, um, of Jeremy Corbyn that suddenly has a waiting list of more than six million. Um, because it takes time to produce, not to doctors and yes. nurses and all the rest of it. So I think that whatever philosophical baggage people go into politics with, particularly when they're students or they're lo in local government or they write for newspapers, they climb the greasy pole. Normally they get into parliament, they become ministers, and eventually if they do get the top job, and what happens is that they move away from their youth, the idealism of their youth, mm because they're in charge of a country in the real world and they don't have the elbow room um, mm. to avoid all these crises. So I think the experience of most prime ministers um, who I've known, and I've known quite a few around the world, is they, they look at themselves in their youth 
they look back at themselves and they think how idealistic and naive was i mm. now i've done the top job now i know what it's really like and that's what i think is going on Thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back on The Bigger Picture at the same time in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.